Commitment is a phrase not always loved today, unless it's about commitment, you know, to self-fulfillment. We don't have a problem with that. You put me in front of ice cream, I get very committed. But when you have a society committed to self-fulfillment, how do you think that plays out? When that's the, the tenor. Organizations struggle all the time to find committed people today unless they convince people of certain selfish gains. One of the great things about team sports is the call to commitment for the good of the whole squad. There was a time when the then Oakland Raiders were known by a certain phrase. Anybody remember it? A commitment to excellence. Anybody remember that? Just win, baby, was the other one. Um, if you're going to play competitive football, you're going to have to sacrifice your body. That's just, they've changed the rules, but I remember, some of you know what I'm talking about. We used to have a, a thing called wedge busters. And your job was, so when a team would receive a kickoff, they would form a tight wedge and then move a, a whole group to block for the runner down the field. And wedge busters literally were called not to make the tackle, but to go bust the wedge by sacrificing themselves, throwing themselves in there head first. They changed that rule. I guess there were too many concussions. But there was, was going to be sacrifices made, and sometimes you were like, it's your turn. You have to bust the wedge. And that was just part of the game. When you see the value of something, though, whether it be in sports or whatever it is in your life you're a part of or committed to, you make the necessary sacrifices and often recommit yourself to it. What is that thing for you? You'll likely do it for a job, maybe a marriage, a child. But what about the most important thing, namely God, who creates all these good things? I looked for some sayings on commitment this week, and I found this quote I really liked in an old Billy Graham book. He said, some time ago, a policeman asked me, what the secret of victorious living was, I told him there's no magic formula that can be pronounced. If any word could describe it, I would say surrender. The second word I would use would be devotion. And so he rightly observes it's not enough to make a simple decision and then hope to walk then in the glow of the, that experience successfully for the rest of our lives. Being human we have to return and renew our commitment to God. We have to take inventory and get regular spiritual checkups, end quote. I like that. Well, let's look at a, 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 an example in God's word where that took place. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. Page 427, 428 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. If you don't have one, please open. That's yours. You can use it today. Please use it. And if you need a copy of God's Word, just see me after the service. I'll get one in your hands. I'm going to think about commitment, surrender, devotion in God's people this morning. And so this instructive book for the church teaches us how to live free in Christ in a fallen world held captive to sin. Ezra Nehemiah is a wonderful book to teach us those lessons. You see, the people by God's sovereign providence and hand have dramatically come back into the land out of Persia, Babylon, 
just as God's word said they would do. And yet the return, was a, it, was, it was a picture, not the fulfillment of God's true eternal Israel of all time in Christ Jesus gathered together in the new creation. They are a picture of people set free and yet still waiting for the consummation of the kingdom, even just the inauguration of it. So what do they do? They have reestablished worship at the temple They've, in Ezra. And then the extension of the temple and its holy marker there in the walls of Jerusalem. That has been completed. The people have gotten together. They have wept. They have rejoiced. They have confessed sin. In fact, that's where we left off last week in chapter 9. You remember chapter 9, verse 33, really summarizes, You are righteous, talking to God, concerning all that's happened to us. And because, because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. That's the summary of their story. And that's a summary of their confession. So it's in view of all this, all this history, God, they're saying. The people now, at the end of chapter 9, enter into a covenant, an agreement, publicly before God and witnesses, just like they used to in Ezra, excuse me, in Nehemiah chapter 10. So you'll see there in chapter 10, you look at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 begins with the the, those, those whose seals were on the document, and it lists all those names. I'm going to pick up now in verse 28 this morning. All right? Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28. Here now, God's holy word. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand, and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our God. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise of any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or, or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. We, we will impose the following commands on ourselves. To give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon Offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work, the house of our God. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it's written in the law. We will bring the first fruits of our land and of every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law and will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings, of every fruit tree, of the new wine and fresh oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering and all our agricultural towns. A priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth, and the Levites are to take a tenth of this offering 
the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. The Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and fresh oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the priests who minister are along with the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word. Verse uh, 39 at the end really summarizes that, that main section well. I mean, what a renewal service this was, restoring the people's consciousness of God's mercy and faithfulness in rescuing them while providing an opportunity for a renewed pledge of allegiance to God. God had forgiven them, and they in turn promised to obey him. That's the order. God had forgiven them, and they, had re- they in turn promised to obey him. As Dr. Derek Thomas said, the, the proper response to grace is obedience. So friends, let's read the text, though, in light of Christ Jesus, as Christ taught us to do so. Beloved, have we not been set free and forgiven in Christ? I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer dead in my connection to God. Grace has invaded my life by the Spirit. I do not have to, in drudgery, commit to Christ. I get to commit to Christ and his people. Yes, there's that sense, obviously, we're all obligated to Christ, but that's not the mindset. I don't do it because it's some hard, you know, heavy-handed law. It's, it's a joy to commit to Jesus. And so here's the central point I want to bring to you from this text this morning. It's there in your, in your bulletin. Commitment to God includes a commitment to be his people together. Commitment to God includes a commitment to be his people together. This passage models the commitment that should mark the Christian church today. Christians marrying Christians and setting up Christian homes and Christians viewing their time and their life and their health and their wealth and their abilities and influence as gifts from God of which they are stewards and on which God himself always has first claim. Christians being generous in the face of human need and responsible in giving to maintain the church's ministry and and personnel. Three ways I I, I want to show you from the text that this passage teaches, teaches that commitment to God includes a commitment to be his people together. Scripture, surrender, and sacrifice. Number one, commitment is the pattern of Scripture. Commitment is the pattern of Scripture. The pattern in the Old and New Testaments of God's true people is not a picture of half-hearted, consumer-minded people. The faithful in the Bible are not flaky in their love of God and their real-life commitment to local people. It's not a church member who wants to be a a member in two different bodies in the Bible while actually being faithful to no one. No, in the Bible we see, like we see here, the pattern of God's people publicly, formally, and accountably commit themselves to God's word in its obligations to the private, corporate, and public witness and obedience of God's word. Pastor Garrett's not making a reacher to say this is not something new we've seen in the Bible. Notice the diversity of people and, and, com- and, and common uh, commitment here. Uh, the written covenant of faithful loyalty to God was symbolically at least, or, or realistically signed by 83 individuals, including civilian rulers, priests, 
Levites, leaders of the people, and other family members. Among those who are represented are recent converts. They're recorded there in verse 28. And so commitment to God, as I want to keep saying to you, includes a commitment to be his people together. The very first part of of the chapter shows these people coming together, committing to be God's people. This was a communal act of dedication and of promised loyalty on behalf of the people of God. Now note the unity around the word of God. You see that happening in the text. These pledges here do not negate the the authority of God's word, but they helpfully summarize uh, God's law. So he leads the people in making, Nehemiah does, these public promises to God. Have you ever made promises to God? If you've been baptized, if you receive the Lord's Supper, you're making a public commitment. Have you ever resolved to repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have not, well, that's the most important commitment you can make today. I just want to say that first. Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, the good news about him that he's come to rescue us from our sins and from God's wrath by dying on the cross for us to pay for our sins. The Bible reveals, beloved, there are two kingdoms at war. The kingdom of this fallen world that raises his hand up in protest and in celebration of human pride. It hates God and it promotes self. And its slogan is simple. It's easy to hear. Live for yourself. Follow your heart. You ever heard those sayings? Uh, God's word says, though, you were made by God and for God. Eternity is written in your hearts, but your sins and rebellion against God and disobedience has separated you from God. But God loved the world in this way that he gave his only eternally begotten son to live and die and to pay for our sins, to endure the wrath of God that we deserve and be raised on the third day. So maybe you're here today and you are distracted by your next fun outing with your friends today. Maybe you're distracted by money. Maybe you're distracted by pleasures or your next achievement. You not only have forgotten God, but you've realized, I've never really loved him. So as you look over your commitments, you are seeing your only real commitment, perhaps for the first time in your life, is your only commitment has been maybe to yourself. And you may not see that you approach the majority of decisions and and, and friendships that way, but how is this going? You ask yourself about every little thing, how is this going to impact me? Rather than, will God be honored, and does God, will God be honored? honored in this and will God be loved in this and will others be loved in this today you need to see the and know that the risen Christ came to deliver you from hell and to call you to himself in love to remake you and give you joy like you've never known this king and this kingdom is worth your short life it's worth the kind of commitment you see these people making here you see Christ alone has the words of life because he is the word of life The Bible tells us all to come to Christ, repent, and trust in him. He will not turn you away. He loves you. But for you believers here this morning, take note of how these people make specific resolutions to God. These are kingdom-oriented resolutions, not of self, but of God's kingdom. So, beloved brothers and sisters here this morning, are you reluctant to make such specific commitments and promises? Christian friends, do not deprive God's people of something God intends to do for them through you and deprive and you deprive yourself of what God intends you to do 
uh, intends to do for you through your own people. See, if these folks took on the mindset of our own age, which is, as you see the confession in their past in chapter 9, they went from self-centered living, navel-gazing, self-worshipping, self-exalting, selfie culture, to all of a sudden focused on God. And when they do that, all of a sudden you realize, oh, they're now living for what they were created to do, what you and I were created to do, to love and worship God, to enjoy Him forever. Commitment to God includes a commitment to be His people together. Beloved, let me just apply some more. A good local church will help you not be a person who picks and chooses which of God's commands to obey. And this is one of the reasons that our church uses a a covenant. It's a useful summary of Christian obligations to God and one another. You can see here, look at the text. You can see in verse 28 and 29, note how they commit with a sworn oath, a promise to follow the law. Look at the descriptor there, carefully obey the commands and the ordinances and the statutes. They made themselves deliberately aware. It was, this kind of service is where I know exactly what I'm doing in making this commitment. Look at the footnote in your Bibles, if you, especially if the CSB on verse 29. Some translations rightly add the phrase, enter, a curse, in, enter in a curse and oath. They acknowledged their accountability in the presence of God in their commitments. Friends, do not make your oaths and promises lightly. God is a truthful God. He's the God of all truth. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That means God is holy. If we are failing in our promises, we need to repent and seek his faithfulness to restore us. There's only one promise, true promise keeper in all the Bible. You know that, right? And it ain't us. It wasn't Israel. It wasn't David. It wasn't Noah. It's Jesus. It's God. Our church covenant says, having been led by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now, listen to the language, in the presence of God, solemn oath right there, angels and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ and by the aid of the Holy Spirit commit to the following. It says, we will walk together in Christian love, strive for the advancement of the church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, promote its spirituality and prosperity, sustain, there's that biblical emphasis that you see here, sustain scriptural worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. Well, friends, when you see and hear our church covenant, remember, it's not our idea. It's ideas, it's wisdom is rooted in God's word. Are you sober? and joyful to commit to God and to love a group of believers you are united with in the gospel and to support Scripture's authority over us here. The ancient Israelites and Christians, too, are called to covenantal renewal. Church, that's one of the large purposes of the Lord's Supper that we're looking to observe today. I'm so glad in the Lord's strange providence that on Lord's Supper Sunday, we're looking at covenant renewal in the Bible. The Lord's Supper is not, at, not us administering magic merit and good feelings to you in the room. 
That's not what we're teaching. That's not what we're doing at all. It's a time for self-examination, confession of sin, remembering what Jesus, specifically remembering what Jesus endured to secure our redemption together with the people of God in the local assembly. A time to remember and proclaim his death until he comes and thereby we renew our pledge of allegiance. Beloved, can't you see if we permit the Lord's Supper to descend to the level of of a meaningless rite, all the while hardening our hearts against the living God, we face grave danger. Because we've taken up, we're taken up a public oath in his, in his, before God Almighty, before his throne. And we take it then in an unworthy manner, insulting the work of Christ upon the cross. It does us good in this assembly to review our sins, confess them, agree with God about them, forsake them, and grasp anew by his grace his faithfulness, and pledge fresh loyalty to God. Amen. See this pattern. Seek the Spirit's help in prayer to be a committed Christian. Committed, commitment to God includes a commitment to be his people together. Number two, commitment involves surrender. Commitment involves surrender. Now, verse 30 and 31, look at it. It may seem odd to some, but it shouldn't to those who know God's word. You know, setting themselves apart in marriage and worship is deeply tied to their hearts and to the temptations uh, they have in the world, if you know Israel's history. But if you know your own history, you know the same is true for you and for me. One of the more besetting sins of the Bible is a love for this world. And in Israel's history and in our histories, beloved, it shows up particularly in the, in the things that are talked about right here. Uh, sex and money in this chapter. Both these temptations lead to the people forsaking God for this world was uh, through intermarriage with the pagan nations. It was a huge issue for Israel. It was forbidden in the Old Covenant and also in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, to marry an unbeliever, to knowingly go enter into that in rebellion against God. And was also wrong to mismanage resources and not invest in worship, in the prescribed worship God had for the people at the, at the, back then at the temple. So this whole section here, really, and moving into the next one, helps work on the heart here, particularly as it pertains to worldliness. Remember, Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so just in them observing these things, marriage and then even the Sabbath and going into their stewardship is really good heart work that's going on here. Israel could not afford to compromise with the religions and related lifestyles around them. The Jews were to maintain a strict code of separation from their neighbors, especially their, the neighbor's religion. And one sure way of corrupting their faith was through unsuitable marriage that brought religious compromise into the very center of the family and home. One commentator applies this well. He said, in Western society, the institution of marriage is seriously under threat 
cohabitation is on the increase, and as divorce figures escalate with ever passing, every passing decade, large numbers of our contemporaries seriously question the need for marriage. Christians are now presented with an unprecedented opportunity to witness to the uniqueness, enrichment, security, and permanence of heterosexual marriage as instituted by God and confirmed by Christ, end quote. Friends, if you uphold the biblical view of marriage, you know like we're becoming more and more odd and strange in this, in this culture that we live in? Young people, if I could speak to you for just a moment, maybe you're sitting here this morning in the pew and you're single, young, and uh, you uh, don't see yourself like the ancient Israelites, and you think this won't, this won't be you. And even parents, we can be tempted to think this wouldn't happen. But let me say today, we need to all prepare ourselves. We need to prepare our young people first to be a great catch right now themselves in the Lord. Amen? Okay? We're like, well, I want somebody good for my child. Have you prepared that child to be somebody good for somebody else? Prioritize character over status and status to impress people who don't, who don't care except to only compare themselves with you. You need godly grit, young people, and grace of above any degree the world can offer you. And will tre treasure godliness above anything this world can offer you. And next, parents, we need to coach them about how it's not enough to marry someone who gives them a nod to God as sufficient. I've seen that too many times. Well, they said they were a Christian, but you look at their life, you're like, they're just giving a nod to God. They're Christian in name only. But not, and, and to only date committed believers who are part of a healthy gospel preaching church. Deliberately dating a non-Christian should be taken very seriously by local churches if their members are doing that because we know Jesus Christ divides. There's no middle response to Jesus. There's not a, a squishy response to Jesus and then a harder response. No, it's just Christ. Either they love him or they don't. And so intermarriage and marrying rightly is a biblical idea both in the Old and in the New Testament. And the covenant that Israel made here, uh, they, they made here with God, focuses on distinctiveness and its separation from the pagan nations. And Israel had been contaminated by syncretism. And Ezra and Nehemiah are concerned about the purity of the people. And so, church, we should care about how we have been called out to be separate from the world while being witnesses living in this world. Our church covenant says we commit to maintain family and personal devotions, raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, seek the salvation of our family. Are you committed to teaching your home and emphasizing the things of God in your home? Commitment to God includes a commitment to be his people together. We should, we should care about marriage and family. Church, we should care about that. We confess that in our own statement of faith. We think politicians are going to bring renewal sometimes in this country and reformation. And these reformation and revival needs to start first in the home. Even when single, we should care about family and church. Single folks should be praying for the, the marriages in our church. Not just married people. God created marriage and the church should have healthy marriages that are about imaging Christ's submission to the Father, ladies, as seen in 1 Corinthians 11, and imaging the sacrifice of Christ in service men as seen in Ephesians chapter 5. 
You know, for years, churches rightly got upset about the government redefining marriage and was gross, which was a failure. But the same churches failed to confront unbiblical divorce and worldly dating practices at the same time. Churches need to get the backbone back and be willing to correct members living in sinful dating relationships. It is killing the church, just like it killed Israel. It's not loving to stay quiet and support uh, unbiblical weddings. It's not. And the biblical idea is that families should be though the composite units out of which each church is built. Parents, we should be focused. We have our, we, our discipleship first starts there at home. Yes, we want to make disciples of our neighbors and co-workers. Absolutely. But what good is all that witnessing if we haven't done it at home? Focus hard on it at home. Godliness is to be modeled in the family and faith passed on there. If you're a child here and you're being raised in a Christian home, you are amazingly privileged. You know how blessed you are to be raised in a home? Yes, your parents are imperfect. They're sinners just like you. But if they're getting up after punch, after punch, after punch, and spiritual hardship and still staying fixed on Jesus, thank God for that and your parents. Learn from their faith. Take stock of your own eternal destiny. You cannot ride their coattails in their glory. You yourself must come to Christ. From this position, it's prudent. Unbiblical marriages undermine the witness to children in the family. One parent is against Christ, tempting others away from commitment to Christ in the home. Notice verse 31, the mention now, the day of rest and worship at the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of for concentrated corporate and intentional worship, as well as a rest from the toil for their labors. Let me do a little teaching here. The ceremonial aspects of the day have ceased along with the rest of the ceremonial law. And technically, we honor the first day and not the seventh day in the New Covenant era. At the very least, we should attempt to keep it holy, different from the rest of the week, by refraining from unnecessary labor and commerce and maintaining faithful attendance to church with our brothers and sisters. That shouldn't be a surprise that I would preach that, beloved. It remains a witness in a godly society, as one author put it. It is a precious witness in the society when the lights are on and the parking lot is full on the Lord's Day. Sunny morning and sunny evening. Could this be an area in which we need to hear a call to reformation? Are you keeping... Some, this particular time set aside as holy, not as some law for you, but as God's good wisdom for us. Forsaking the world for these people meant turning down lucrative opportunities. You see, for them not to intermarry meaning they had to turn down something they desired. It could have been the romance. It could have been, who knows, it could have been the finances of the union. Think about working on the Sabbath instead of treasuring God. They had to turn that, had to turn that work down to say, I need to treasure the Lord as he made me to focus on him. Look at verse 31. The Sabbath idea extended the seventh year when the normal work of cultivation was prohibited. Debts would not be collected during this period and allow debtors an opportunity to recover. Praise the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, property that had been mortgaged to pay for debts reverted back to the original family owner, according to Leviticus 25. 
Sabbath rest led the people to trust the Lord both for fruitfulness in the subsequent years. And the mindset of a health of a, of a believer in the, in the daily living is, is this, beloved. Here's what we see in them surrendering the Sabbath and them trusting God's guidance for them in marriage and in worship and in work is this. Here's the mindset. Do your best and let him do the rest in living faithfully by faith. <laughs> That's it. We know we're not saved by our best, but by the, but by the best, Jesus Christ. But there's a simple worship and trust that happens by them trusting God's word in marriage and in rest and following these laws. Again, Dr. Thomas was so helpful here. He said, all that we have is from the Lord. Few things test. That's why we read that in the statement of faith this morning. Just want to remind you all of this. Everything we have is from the Lord. Few things tested such a conviction more intensely than the Sabbath sabbatical law. But the principle remains true under the new covenant. Paul tells the Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul's not merely thinking of the body, but everything. Possessions, goods, they're all the Lord's. We are stewards. We hold all that we have, he says, and trust the Lord. We cannot say God can have everything else, but not this in our hearts. We can have an, an hour of, uh, he can have an hour of my time on Sunday, but no more. He can't have the whole day, and he can't have my house, and he can't have my possessions. That's not the heart of the law. That's not the spirit of the law. You see, we read those covenant commitments they're making, and we're thinking maybe superficially, maybe in a wooden sense, you know. Oh, no, this was, these were some heart commitments they're making here. And, beloved, our churches do not need more fake Christians in this country or any country, but people focused with their hearts on Jesus. We need more saltiness, not less, beloved. Husbands and fathers, let me remind you to set the tone in leading your family spiritually. Set the tone to be at church more passionately than you are to the ball fields or wherever it might be. Set the tone. Shut down hindrances, things that the evil one and your own flesh seek to keep you and your family from prioritizing the God. Shut those down. Our church covenant says we commit to give the church sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin in our attendance. Let me speak to the young men in the room Determine now that you will be unmovable on this, gentlemen. Settle this conviction in your life today. I will be committed to the house of the Lord. Young women, do not date a man who you have to get to come to church. Heaven, help us. Godly people prioritize the wisdom, not the law of the Sabbath, it's not just a, a, a little rule-keeping they keep through. Their life is committed to worshiping God. So many times I just want to talk to singles and say, raise the bar. Raise your standard. The word, world has these superficial standards, wicked standards for dating. It's superficial. It's, keen, it's obsessed with uh, plastic and exteriors is obsessed with money 
People need to wake up and get focused on God. Friends, it's worth the sacrifice to be committed to God. Jesus is worth it. Your life will be living out the goodness of the Proverbs, beloved, when you set your heart on God. I mean, imagine a whole church of people filled with this kind of commitment to God. Commitment to God includes a commitment to be as people together. Number three, commitment includes sacrifice. Commitment includes sacrifice, verses 32 through 39. Look at verse 32. They stand firmly or impose or appoint, commit to the following. Is that covenantal language? Following these things concerning the temple ministry. They commit to supporting the ministry and their giving. You see that in the text. Their contributions for regular offerings and festivals. It includes provisions such as supplies for sacrifices, festivals, as you see here. They were even fine to cast lots to see who was up to give the wood that would be used for constant burning. All right, Bob, you're up. You've been, you've been chosen. It wasn't hard. They just got to it. Notice how in verse 35 through 37, it reveals that other commitments include the presentation of the firstborn of family and livestock at the temple, a practice which incurred the, the payment of uh, temple tax. And so these commands taught God's people that all that we have, yes, even a firstborn, we give back to God, stewards of his gifts, and bringing first fruits. By the way, the child was not sacrificed to the Lord, but something was, a, an animal was given in place of the child. We'll come back to that. The on, they, this honors the Creator by giving him back what he's already given. And we see the wisdom of tithing for our instruction in verse 38. Just wisdom. It's not a law for us, but there's, there's wisdom here. It's a starting place for people to begin with their income, to put, a, put it aside in their commitment. I have found God faithful over the years that as soon as I'm paid to go ahead and set it aside, leave it on there, and you know what? He has provided every step of the way. You likely remember how in, in the law, their sons and their unclean livestock would be redeemed by a monetary payment, the substitution of a clean animal. And so while the firstborn of a clean animal was offered to the priest, we know the person was not. And so the giving of the firstborn son and then his redemption pointed to the fact that sinners need redeeming by the eternally begotten son who is called the firstborn, the rightful heir, Jesus, who gave himself to redeem God's children. Oh, friends, we think we give to God. God gave to us. He gave us his one and only son. Our sacrifices are small compared to his. Jesus is sinless. He needed no redemption. He needed no one to come and be his substitute. He is our substitute. And he came to purchase our redemption from sin because he loved us. We, were in, we had only debt. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God loves you. He's willing to take on our sin debt as if, he, if it was his own and pay for it in full. No wonder Jesus said, it is finished. No wonder Hebrews tells us, once and for all, Jesus paid it. Oh, friends, we've been given so much. No wonder the Bible calls us to be givers. No wonder God's word calls us to be givers. 
The covenant of this church says we too commit to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. These people were viewing their time, life, health, wealth, abilities, and influences as gifts from God. Do you view your, yourself that way? Do you review God's gifts to you that way? Rather than seeing giving as an obligation, we see it as a privilege. To give wisely, generously, proportionately, systematically. All this effort for the household of God, named in verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. In the Old Covenant, this was the temple ministry. Now in the New Covenant, by the Spirit in Christ, the household of God is the local church. The Bible says we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are living stones built upon Christ, the cornerstone, and the apostles. God is building a household, a household of faith in Christ. And he's been doing it from the beginning. And so by joining a gospel-preaching church, we commit to loving and giving ourselves to the ministry and caring for a particular group of people. And this often is difficult and inconvenient. Why do we covenant together? Why do these people covenant together? Because... We need to be specific to carry out this love in good times and the bad times. It's sort of resolved. I've committed to do this. When you're committing to a local church, you're not committing to your favorite Sunday morning preacher or preference uh, you appreciate most. When you commit to a church, you most fundamentally committing to Christ and to his people. Look around you. Take a minute. Look around the other side of the room. Just look around. I'm not going to have you speak to each other. These are real human beings, real covenant members, and soon to be covenant members of this church. And so when we vote to bring members into the church, we're not voting because like they want a popularity contest. We're voting to take responsibility for them, to care for them, to commit to love them, and to commit to lock arms with them for the sake of the gospel. Like it or not, we got each other. This is who we got. Thank God we have each other, that the Spirit is at work in our lives. A church isn't a crowd of Christians who show up at the same time every week for some music and a message. Let me say that again. A church is not a crowd of Christians who show up at the same time every week for some music and a message. A church is a people who have committed themselves to help each other get to heaven, to encourage each other to keep marching to glory. Now I want to do one more fun exercise with you. If you're, if you're able, raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. Now everybody look around. That's who needs encouragement. Everybody in this room needs encouragement. You know that. Just, I just, if you didn't know that, I didn't find anybody at church who needed encouragement today. Liar. That's not true. Someone could use a, a kind word. Someone could say, hey, I'm interested in your life. Would you help me, tell me how you're doing? Someone could say, someone would love for you to pray with them today or just take an interest. Let's not be the kind of people who are always happy for everybody else to ask us questions and never ask something back in return. That is a bad example. That's not showing the love of God. We are to help each other walk 
and march to glory. We commit like this in the covenant. We further commit to watch over one another in brotherly love. Remember, so watching over one another, caring for each other, remember each other in prayer, aid each other in sickness and distress, cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and speech, to be slow to take offense, being mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure reconciliation without delay. Commitment to God includes a commitment to be his people together. Let me conclude. This passage models the commitment that should mark the Christian church today. If you meditate on it and see the wisdom and spirit behind the law, you can see it right there. Christians marrying Christians, setting up Christian homes, Christians viewing their time, life, health, wealth, abilities, and influences as gifts from God, of which they are stewards and on which God himself always has first claim. Christians being generous in the face of human need, and responsible in giving to maintain the ministry and personnel. It's right there. The principles and wisdom are placed right here in Nehemiah chapter 10. So the question is, beloved, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and hopefully a member of a church, are you committed to this work and to these people, God's people? God is glorified when we live like that. Let's pray. Father, we confess commitment is not natural to our flesh. Self-love is. Self-seeking is. Um, selfishness, Lord, is so easy for us. Well, we can even parent in a way. We can even uh, approach church in a way, Lord, that really is about making us feel better. What we need to do, Lord, is focus on honoring and obeying you and loving you and obeying you, Lord. Your word is true. Our ways are strained and wrong. And so we look to you, God, because we lack wisdom and we need help from above and we know we can count on it because you promised it to your children. You promised the counselor, the comforter, the helper to help us walk in commitment and to be givers, to be sacrificial people, Lord, committed to you and your word so that you'd be praised and glorified. Would you help us in that? And Lord, as we renew our commitment in, to Christ in observing the Lord's Supper, Lord, drive it home in our hearts, Lord. How most importantly, this is what we're about, is King Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.